Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Joshua Kahn with your health update. The Salem's Lot Board of Health would like to announce the first annual Hubie Marston Memorial Blood Drive. This event will take place Saturday at the historic Marston House at sundown, although the press release is quite hard to read through the dark stains. Looks like someone got into the complimentary jelly donuts early. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. <laughs> Today we are uh, wrapping up part two of Jerusalem's Lot. We promise we'll actually finish Jerusalem's Lot. Uh, well, I Don't make Sam's that promise. <laughs> <laughs> and today we have uh, Ben leading the discussion. So take it away, Ben. Yeah, this book picks up uh, in part two. We pick up immediately after the events at the end of part one. Uh, ben, asleep at Ava's boarding house, wakes up to a phone call. And it's a call from Matt. It's 4 a.m. and he says, bring a crucifix. Great phone call to get in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. The kickoff of part two is so awesome. I, I, I love that, you know, he, he gets this cryptic call and he's just like, all right, because it's Ben and that's what he does. <laughs> like, all right, hey, you want me to come over and bring a cross? I'll, I'll find something. And he goes. And then when he walks in, he, he just sees that on Matt's table, there's a coffee, a Bible and a gun. <laughs> and I was like, hell yeah, that's Christmas. <laughs> Right. <laughs> three things that you definitely want to see when someone invites you over to the house at like three in the morning. Right. <laughs> yeah. And his first words basically are, there's a dead man upstairs. And Ben's like, huh. <laughs> Interesting. He takes all of this extremely. <laughs> well, I mean, if somebody invites me over at that time and has all those things and tell me a dead body, I think my first question is, am I next? Yeah. <laughs> that is the first thing I'd be wondering. But uh, he, he brings up that Matt is such a with it and together person that he never questions anything Matt said. Well, he at first he's like, oh, I don't know. We'll have to see for myself. But he never is like. Uh, he's not. And he it's because I kind of mentioned last episode that these characters that we're seeing sort of assemble we know they're going to be this team or we think they're going to be this team mm -hmm. they all have something that the other townspeople don't and it kind of shows itself when ben goes upstairs and he's walking down the hall towards the closed door and he's thinking about walking down the hall mm -hmm. in another house towards another closed door when he sees hubie marston so he's, I think that that experience for him when he was a child has really shaped the way he's going to process all this information. Mm -hmm. Because he is uh, at heart a believer. Yeah, well, and they're both, they're open-minded intellectuals. Like, and, and I think that's my favorite part of, of this part of the scene is that, you know, after he checks and he sees, oh, okay, Mike's dead body's in there, even though it looks like it might not be dead. Uh, and they they tell they they discuss literally every option, like no matter how mm -hmm. crazy it is, let's put it on the table mm -hmm. and make a plan from there. And just, I thought that was great. Yeah. And he doesn't believe it's vampires, but he doesn't believe that he's crazy. Right. Well, yeah, he doesn't believe at first, but at a certain point after they view the body and he's just like Mar uh, not Mark, uh, Danny Glick's body looks completely healthy but is not breathing, has no pulse. And they talk over every possibility. Ben essentially says, like Matt, ask him, do you, do you believe me? And Ben goes, well, I guess I have to. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the book, in his character, that makes complete sense. But I could not help thinking of myself in this situation in <laughs> real life and going, yeah, you kind of what? <laughs> no, you don't have to believe him. I mean, yeah. That's insane. But that just proves that I would uh, be a vampire. <laughs> right, right there with me. We've yeah, only got yeah. Josh left. Yeah, Josh, oh, you're, you're our last hope. <laughs> oh, geez. Do you, I, I have an important question about when 
the sheriff arrives and Dr. Cody to do the examination. Um, he turns the now corpse over and he pulls down his pants and he's taking his temperature rectally. Do you think they were lovers? <laughs> How many I times do I have to say this? Remember. No, they didn't describe his package. Did you guys? That's the only way you'd know if they were lovers. <laughs> when did this okay, happen? The it's word, when he's doing the examination. The word queer and even a, a more derogatory term for people yes. who just like yes. other people of the same sex is all over this book. It's, oh, I guess I blocked it out. Well, I mean, there are you. a lot of the the townspeople who have pretty reductive beliefs. Yeah. Anytime you're talking about two men together, whatever townsperson it is, oh, I bet they're a bunch of... Uh, uh, uh. It's like, uh, okay, I'm tired yeah. of that. Well, it's, yeah, it's that small-minded, small town. Mm-hmm. But it, it, I think that's also one of the uh, indicators of why everyone is in each other's business, but they're also so distant. They don't know the truth about anybody's life. Yeah. It just illustrates that everyone makes active assumptions about everyone else. Mm -hmm. So everyone thinks they know everything, but they don't know shit about other people. Except for Mabel. (laughs) (laughs) See, I just have to like double down on that. I I have no idea who that is. Who the hell is Mabel? Uh, That's classic Mabel right there. No idea. So yeah. Perkins comes over, and uh, I honestly, I I love this bit because, like I said in the last episode, uh, we didn't see much of him. I just love Perkins. I don't know what it is about him. He's just such an a small town. Like, oh yeah, he's so plays everything so slow and cool. And especially in this scene, he walks up to men. He's like, "So, uh, how's the story coming? You gonna be in town for a while?" What are your plans? And it is just small talk, but it is small town, don't leave town. Mm -hmm. And it's such a cool, cool little character. It's funny because I hate this character. Really? I do. Well, at the end of the book, he becomes... A, a symbol I for felt, something pretty hateful. I felt vindicated when he turned out to be awful. Really? <laughs> because the entire book, I was just like, I at first, I liked him a little bit because he talks about how he, he got his star from a magazine, like his little <laughs> share of star. I was like, that's fucking funny. Well, no, that was well, Nolly. That's Nolly. Oh, no, that's Nolly. Yeah, that's Nolly Nolly's an idiot. Nolly's See, an I, idiot. I think Buster from the Misery movie has really <laughs> raised the bar for yes. small town sheriffs. Yes. If this <laughs> He's is, no Buster. If he'd been more Buster. Uh, I thought he, I, he reminded me a lot of Buster. So anyway, they say essentially, don't leave town. This is really suspicious. But after Matt and Ben are talking, and Matt says, I, I feel weird. You know that word? The way the kids use it? <laughs> but anyway, uh, Ben drives back to Ava's and he's getting ready to go to bed. And surprise, Floyd attack! He does go to bed. He, he's on his oh, way to the car right. the next He morning. wakes up and Floyd is sitting in his car. Dressed all crazy. Yeah, he's, he's dressed fully like... Fully clothed. You guys, it seems like he doesn't want the sun to touch him. Interesting. Yeah, he's like thick gloves on. <laughs> Lyme disease. <laughs> Weird. It's going around. And the the book picks up. Next chapter, uh, Susan at home, and she's confronted by her mom. That's a rough scene. Yeah. What did you guys think? Because this scene made me like Susan. It did me more. too. She sort of, her character sort of vindicated itself in this scene. She grew up, mm-hmm. which 24 year old, arguably she could have grown up a little sooner, but the mm-hmm. scene really brought that out. She goes home and she's, you know, by this point, her mom, I think is getting the idea that Susan is, has fallen for Ben and that's just done, mm-hmm. but she's still holding on to Floyd and Floyd had come to visit and poured his heart out to Susan's mom. And so Susan's trying to give her this talk like, you don't know what you want. You know, I've, I've seen these Ben Mears types before. Mm. She knows that he's just going to break her heart and leave town. And But she's mean about she's it. She's super so mean. mean. She fucking uses Ben's wife against him. Yeah, yeah she tells her that the was it the national Enquirer or something mm-hmm. similar yeah ran a story that ben mears you know famed author was drunk on his motorcycle got into a car accident and killed his wife 
Which we know that is not true. Yeah. yeah. But it plants a seed of doubt in right. Susan nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Can we just touch real quick? Um, Susan has this image of what her mother envisions for her. And she sees her and her mom sitting together. You know, they're both old. They're both like connected by this yarn. And it's frayed because of all the tugging back and forth. It, I don't know why, but that scene really, really struck me. And I guess... I have a good relationship with my mom. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it really kind of bothered me. Yeah. I bet it didn't strike you as hard as Susan struck her mom. Yeah, she got slapped. (laughs) (laughs) Slapped the taste right out of her mouth. But as she's like, Susan, mom, I'm out of here. I'm moving out. I'm, I'm not a kid anymore. And just as she's about to leave, she gets a phone call. Ben is in the hospital because Floyd... Knocked his fucking teeth in. Yeah. And Susan gets the final word of, oh, yeah, you like Floyd so much? Well. That nice boy Floyd Tibbetts just put Ben in the hospital or something to that effect. (laughs) And uh, we cut to the hospital. This is not where I expected the story to go. I was so thrown by Ben being taken out by what appeared at the time uh, an act of vengeance. Yeah, jilted lover. Yeah, not a vampire beating shit into <laughs> someone in broad daylight. Well, I wonder if that was Floyd's, if that was a promise that Floyd received. Like, you'll, you know, if Barlow approached him at night and said, oh, Susan, you know, that Ben guy, well, you'll, mm. you'll get it. If you want revenge, here's yeah. how you're going to get it. Uh, so Ben kind of like fills Susan in on on everything they've been discussing. And he says that Susan should go see Matt and that she should make sure that going forward, all of her windows are locked. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, when they were checking out the Matt's house, they noticed that the window, which had been locked, the screen was in the front yard. Mm-hmm. And so like that was another piece of further evidence that something had come inside from outside. Andy tells her to remove can't from her vocabulary. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was a He's such a writer. <laughs> <laughs> but and- It was a good conversation to go with that. Um, what Matt and Ben we're doing themselves of if you eliminate all of the of the, the possible options, all that's left is the impossible. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of his way of having that same conversation with her. You cannot have cynicism if we are going to move forward. (laughs) You can't, can't. (laughs) You can't, can't. (laughs) Yeah, that goes along with this theme that runs through the book. In fact, she even says, Susan goes, uh, she leaves Ben and she goes to visit Matt on Ben's request. And Ben says, have Matt tell you everything. And Matt asks Susan if she's met this straker. And did you guys think anything weird about what her response is? I thought it was familiar. <laughs> uh, definitely familiar. It, it's Because it's a mixture of this guy is charming and i'm not quite sure why and he's alluring and there's this like instant of attraction but at the same time you get the sense of something really dark underneath and that he could be very cruel cruel and she sensed contempt and cynicism ah (laughs) anyway (laughs) Uh, she also says quote i was attracted to him in a mildly sexual way i guess (laughs) <laughs> and of course, there's something attractive about a man who is unabashedly bald. What? Is, is that is that true? Sam? Uh, I, okay. Look, look <laughs> oh, yeah. behind Sorry. you. Uh, there's a my, lot of Jean-Luc Picard at, yeah. around the radio Stephen studio. King is in our station. It's yeah. equal Jean-Luc Picard. Well, there, there's your proof yep. that Stephen King can sexualize a man. But only, oh, oh, only oh, evil, oh, oh. only <laughs> evil men and their heads, I guess. I don't know what point I'm making. I You hurt CM physically <laughs> by that statement. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I liked her response, though, because it was so vulnerable mm. and honest. And that would be really hard to tell this teacher, this, you know, someone she learned from and looked up to presumably um the weird sexual ways that this <laughs> stranger made you feel because i mean that that wouldn't come out naturally i wouldn't sure. just tell somebody that 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 kind of shows that she well <laughs> presumably but maybe not is kind of assembling as part of this team with them that's she's, fair and she, so she's 
spoilers, not so much a part of the team, but she is instrumental to the team in what happens later. They're yeah. assembling a cotet. Yeah, they're right? a cotet. Oh, sure. of course. Okay. <laughs> uh, there, we. Ha- I know we have some listeners that have never read The Dark Tower. <laughs> and they're like, we have no idea <laughs> what, know what you guys is. are talking about half the time. <laughs> um, anyway, they, they are talking at Matt's and he tells her everything. And she's like, no, nah, that's silly. Until there's a noise upstairs. Oh, sorry. Before we investigate the noise upstairs... One of the things in this book that drove me insane is how many pages we spend on they brought this person in and they told them everything. <laughs> yep. And it, like, thank God that we don't have to go through the conversation every time. But I feel like sometimes it's like a two page description of like, we sat down, I pulled my Bible and my gun out, <laughs> told her everything. Yeah, like, that happened. There's so much catching everyone else up on everything that's happening that every time a new character joins the group they're like okay come on you've got a lot to hear (laughs) here's the flyer just (laughs) it's both sides front and back it'll get you up to speed uh so there's there's a noise upstairs and susan immediately is terrified and matt badass matt burke gathers up his willpower and goes upstairs to investigate and what does he find he finds the door slightly ajar, which is one of my favorite lines, though, that all fears. What the, is the basis of all human fears, he thought. A closed door slightly ajar. Yeah, that was awesome. Stephen King can write some shit about doors. I lo- <laughs> Seriously, there, there, I love it. There are a few lines talk that about I, just, I, I, I just wrote, fuck, Stephen King can write. Yeah. He's just so good. <laughs> uh, so um, he goes into the bedroom and Mike is laying there where he was in the position he found him in last time. And he's like, there's there's no way. Like, how, this, this body wasn't here. He goes over and he checks it, and Mike opens his eyes. And has a giant, his, his shirt is off, and he has a giant Y-shaped scar from his autopsy. Oh, so awesome. And Matt, with his crucifix, drives him out. He uses his belief to drive out and he says i revoke your uh your invitation invitation and mike falls out the window and says i will see you sleep like the dead teacher and then matt has a heart attack and susan doesn't see any of this that's the infuriating part because she stayed downstairs yeah yeah she hears it but she can't corroborate what happened to him yeah but when she goes up and gets the blanket, gets everything for him, and she goes back, and she finds Mike's class yes. ring. And she believes and, everything. Oh, like, that was such a, a great way to, because that that's exactly how it played out in my head, is like, oh my god, she missed all of this. Like, she missed the defining mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. and then just that one piece left behind, and I was like, ah, you got me. I don't want to get too far ahead, but mm. I, I don't know. I don't feel like she quite believes everything. She's still, based on her later actions, like, yes, she does, but she also has this seed of doubt. Uh, yeah. Because she I would goes agree about things like she's got to prove something. And if she truly believes, she would not have done what she ends up doing. That's we'll a to. good point. Uh, because, yeah, she kind of uh, she goes about things the real uh, dumb way. The real dumb <laughs> Actually, arguably, they all do, which I hope we get into. It, it's just yeah. the things it's, working against them are so, like, almost supernatural. and Almost. It, <laughs> well, I, I mean, their stupidity and how they go about things sometimes. Uh, true. But yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So our next chapter is another chapter about the town. Oh, oh, God, <laughs> so excited. Josh. So the, the big point of this chapter, it, like, it starts off with, like, basically making the point that these towns have secrets. And mm-hmm. nobody, nobody, kind of the point I made earlier of, like, everybody thinks they know everything. The, the town has secrets, but nobody knows the lengths to which those secrets go or the depths of those secrets. And yep. we get a couple of those that don't really ever come back. Yeah. Um, the, like about murders and, but like the one that I thought was interesting is that, uh, that uh, Birdie begged uh, Hubie to shoot yeah. her, but we never like, get an explanation can, can of like get a little more. Yeah. Can we say more like, I want to know what the <laughs> fuck led to that now. But like, that was such an interesting thing of like, that's we've heard, we heard the story. We know everybody knows the story, but we get a glimpse of like, mm-hmm. nobody knows the lengths of the story. Cause this is something that's left out. And we also get uh, kind of an update of the body count of the, the other new vampires who they have killed. And we find out that Danny Glick 
ate the baby. He, he didn't turned, eat the baby whole. Yeah. He turned the baby. <laughs> he turned no, a no. baby into a he vampire. He ate the abused baby. And then comes the scene where Sandy, the mother, straight up weakened at Bernie's her baby. <laughs> it, it, oh, God, it was... It's for for characters, I, that character I hate. Mm-hmm. And I was just like... So I felt so bad for that breakdown she has. Like classic King, take a character that I fucking hate and then make me sympathize with them. For it's a evidence pages. that there are larger things at work. I mean, okay, for, for this book, it's a vampire, but for society, it's you know she's this stressed out, terrible mother who abuses her child because she had a baby when she was still a child and is still a child, and she lives you know probably paycheck to paycheck. Her husband is not supportive. He mm-hmm gets off work and then goes to the bar and drinks yeah. and then come home comes home and berates her for being fat and for not you know all she has to do is make sure the kids okay and she gets to stay home all day not acknowledging that parenting is a mm. job too so right. i think that's king bringing back that humanity for her in yeah. yeah um in the forward i didn't touch on this there was another part where king says uh, that the whole book is written as, I think he says something along the lines of a metaphor for the state of America at the time, which was definitely not familiar today. The rich getting richer and, <laughs> the, and uh, the poor getting welfare if they're lucky. The rich people in this story are like Barlow and Straker mm-hmm. uh, and they're feeding on this poor rundown essentially already dead town small town america so we also get uh other other sicknesses and deaths danny glick's mother is sick she got lyme disease she got (laughs) she got lyme disease real bad is danny turning his mother into a vampire he's breastfeeding yeah and it's upsetting let's move on he's he's game of thronesing her (laughs) i hate it so, <laughs> so much. Uh, not as much as I hate a quick sidebar to Ben and Susan in the hospital where uh, they have this a little tete-a-tete. How would I explain? Or, <laughs> they want to they, they bang in the hospital. Yeah. And uh, Susan says, how would I explain it to those little candy stripers? And Ben says, tell them you're giving me the bedpan. Gross times a million. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I <laughs> super gross. Anyway, that's when they have their uh, the stop saying can't, and uh, they and they swap info because they're back oh, together. Can, can we also mention too that throughout these conversations, different characters have mentioned two other characters go see Father Callahan, and yeah. for one reason mm. or another, we've we've had that so many times, but nobody has yet made it to Father Callahan. And who knows what might have happened had they made it sooner. I uh, see. I, I don't know that it would have changed much because it's not to the point where they when they finally get to Callahan that they have so much backing them up. But they've had more time to process it than he has. That's true. All right. Yeah. Good point. We get some other characters. Uh, Nolly and Parkins find Floyd dead in uh, the jail cell where they left him. Two drunk dummies visit the dump and can't find Dud. Uh, oh, th- this was a part because like there's this extended part about these just two drunk guys that we've never met. And there's a line where they say uh, that they had developed their own protective coloration. They they explain these characters that they're just poor, good old boys that live in the lot. And that, you know, if you saw them drive down the street, you wouldn't even notice. Right. Them. What's uh, funny is I didn't even notice them in the book. Well, yep, exactly. exactly. I, that was my note. <laughs> The scene, the, the the scene is so intense with uh, Bonnie Sawyer uh, and Corey Bryant. Bonnie Bonnie is the one that she's having the affair with. Oh God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is where we, this is where we get to like why that setup earlier is important. Yeah, because Co- Corey comes over and she's seducing him, and then her husband Reggie is just suddenly there with a shotgun, and Corey straight up pees himself, and <laughs> like this, like is probably my favorite of the like out of context, just town mm-hmm. stories because he takes like pulls core into the room, makes him put the entire shotgun barrel in his mouth and then click. 
dry and fires. He dry fires it, and Corey shits his pants. <laughs> but he's so calm. He and is he's smiling the whole time. Yeah. Oh, it's and then, so threatening. My favorite thing about it is like after all this, this buildup, and he makes him shit his pants, and he's like, "All right, now what you're gonna do is you're gonna get up." You're going to walk to the bus station. You're going to buy the first ticket mm-hmm. to Boston from Boston. You can get anywhere. But here's the thing. You're going to go straight there. You're not going to change because if you change clothes, you'll start feeling like a person again. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that. And I was like, damn, dude. Yeah. And that I love stone cold. Awesome. But then he turns out to be a real piece of shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Corey runs into Barlow. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I loved the, the as this happened, I was like. I love the irony that this kid is like, oh, my life's ruined. He's but the irony away. that he's going to go out of town <laughs> no. and this guy, Reggie, is saving him from a much worse face. Well, then Barlow shows up and he's described as middle-aged this time. Yeah. Uh, the first time we saw him uh, when he met Dud, he was, he was an older man. Mm-hmm. And uh, now he's uh, this very charismatic middle-aged man with i imagined a little pencil mustache <laughs> uh, see that that buying trip must have rejuvenated him yes that's what it was <laughs> there's one thing uh i wanted to go back ben temporarily visited matt and ben describes the hospital as the citadel of unbelief where nightmares are dispatched with lysol and scalpels and chemotherapy rather than stakes and bibles and wild mountain time and it's just uh, another dig at anything scientific, anything that is black and white about the world. The book is them slowly shedding typical, you know, common knowledge and getting to this religious, pure feeling of vampires. Vampires. <laughs> yeah, they're abandoning science for instinct. Yes. Yeah. And this is the point where now Susan fills everybody in because both uh, Ben and Matt have still been in the hospital. She tells them about all the mysterious deaths. The bodies of Floyd and the baby have gone missing from the morgue. Mm -hmm. So all these mysterious deaths are happening. And then Mark Petrie wakes up. That's spooky. Yeah, Mark wakes up and guess who's at his window? It's Danny. And he wants to see that monster collection. (laughs) <laughs> he came to see oh no wait he wants to turn mark into a vampire right, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah that's, that's right I, th- I thought i um, get those things confused <laughs> the part of this that i thought was really cool so he this happens and mark grabs one of the props from his monster set and it's a cross and he you know of course mark is this awesome kid because he, he writes <laughs> awesome kids he banishes him like he relies on his instinct mm-hmm. it's dead on and it's he had, belief. yeah, he lets him come in and then he banishes him out. Yes, that he doesn't even like go away. He's like, I think he says, come in then. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then he shoves it in his face. Swipes at him with a cross. Yep. And so the noise of that wakes up his dad. So Mark jumps back into bed and kind of acts like he's asleep. And his dad comes in and he's asking him, hey, I heard a noise. Did you have a nightmare? Oh, I don't know. Maybe he's looking around and he has a feeling of dread and he doesn't understand why, but he can't shake it. And so he keeps asking him, like, well, do you need a drink of water? You know, are you sure you're okay?" And I just Mm -hmm. thought that was cool. It's like he was treating him like he was a child, like a little child again. Yeah. And after his dad leaves, Mark lays down and falls asleep. Yeah. I thought this was really mean, a juxtaposition between mark and matt Mm -hmm. because it's like yeah this kid he just falls asleep and this old guy who can't do anything he has a heart attack (laughs) it is because of this quote the same lonely battle must be fought night after night and the only cure is the eventual ossification of the imaginary faculties and this is called adulthood Mm -hmm. this whole book is the reason Mark is so, he immediately believes, is because he has that childlike belief, uh, which is really what connects Ben to this, is he has that childlike belief because he remembers his experience at the Marston house. And that's why Matt had a fucking heart attack, is because (laughs) he is an intelligent, educated man, and as much as he believes when he sees it, his body is old, and it's a shock to him. And Matt, being a kid, just shrugs it off. It reminded me of the Losers Club. Mark would rule the fucking Losers Club. <laughs> so what about Susan? 
who is still very close to being a child herself. Well, she's she's uh, <laughs> the, true. Uh, she's no, you know what in I mean, between. Though? She yeah, because she it is on that cusp, but yet what she does betrays which fits that her belief, which fits her actions mm-hmm. because she half believes and half doesn't. Yeah. Now here's where shit start getting crazy because we've got. Uh, everybody's back together. This is when they start bringing Dr. Cody in on all this and they fill Cody in on everything. <laughs> I like him too. That's he's, what we do. He's a cool character. Yeah, I like Dr. Cody. And uh, they originally come up with the plan of uh, we're going to get Danny's body exhumed uh, to, to prove that the casket is empty. Now we're going to find out some way to do it. And they get Cody on board surprisingly quickly. Where he's just <laughs> like, yeah, I, I mean, I guess. I guess we can do that. And so they go to the Glick's house only to find out that Marge has died and that Tony has been taken to the hospital seriously ill. This is the the first time that they've made this like a solid plan and it has been thrown off. Like every time they like they plan on doing something, they they usually have that that follow through. This is like they go to pull the trigger on this and then the entire plan unravels because it's not mm-hmm. what they were expecting to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they, they even say that they have this uh, feeling of things getting out of control because yeah, they have this plan and then they're like, uh, Oh, we, we can't talk to them now. Well, we need to go see Callahan still. Oh, and we should check on the McDougals because we know the baby is missing. Maybe the baby went for them. There's so much that they're, they have piling up and they know that they only have until sundown. And sundown somehow every time just keeps coming quicker and quicker. No, don't get me started. <laughs> uh, tomorrow, sundown comes way sooner than it should. Meanwhile, as they are taking the reasonable steps, they're they're doing their due diligence, essentially. Susan makes her mistake. She reverts back to their first, their initial plan before they all kind of realized what was going on by herself. And she's... She has enough sense, and this is what we mean by on the cusp, because she doesn't just, you know, drive up to the front door, knock and say, you know, hi, nice to meet you or see you again or whatever. She sneaks. She's sneaking up to the house through the woods and she doesn't come prepared. So she comes across like a a part of a fence. Yeah, yeah, that's pointed at the end. So she grabs that like a stake, a makeshift stake. Yeah, and under it is a rock and she lifts it up and there's a map to Zihuatanejo. (laughs) That's crazy. She goes to be with Andy. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Shawshank. Um, for, for listeners who might not Spaghetti. have heard that episode. <laughs> and so as she's hiding in the woods, she runs into, or actually he, another character runs into her, Mark Petrie. But yeah. we don't but know we don't that. Know that. Yeah. We think she's been captured. Because, because yeah, somebody as grabs she's her. crawling through the woods, a hand falls on her shoulder and it smash cuts to Ben and Jimmy. <laughs> And you're like, oh, no. Sorry, I was just trying not to be all dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) And Mark has a gun and a cross. And he's kind of like, lady, what did you bring? (laughs) And he calls her out. Um, Yeah. Because she's like, you know, this is bogus. He's like, why you have that shitty little steak with you then? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Ben and and Cody, they go to the that morticians that's going to have the body. And they convince Uh the mortician very easily. Again, everyone's very easily convinced (laughs) to do stuff. Yeah. Uh, to let them stay with the body and can't of explain Mrs. why Glick. of Mrs. Glick. Yeah, because they've they've taken her body there and they said that we just need to stay with the body. Yeah, is it? Do you need when, to test it? No, we just need to stay <laughs> with it. Yeah, because when two men, one a complete stranger, show up to a mortuary and are like, "We're gonna sit with this corpse," oh, uh, means they're in a cup. They're in a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> They they wait until 7.02, Almanac Sunset. And exactly at 7.02, then they both turn to each other and go, ah, shit, crosses. Yeah! What <laughs> the fuck? See, that's what I mean. They make so many dumb decisions. It's like, I it, is it the influence of Barlow? Is it the influence of the evil that's in the town that's like th- that's thwarting them? Or are they just stupid? I definitely think... <laughs> A few instances, like there are a few things Barlow does later on that are specifically like uh, he compares it to chess. It's it's chess. Yeah. And he's just always a step ahead. This is just Ben and Jimmy <laughs> being dumb. 
But real quick, as the sun is setting, they whip up a cross out of tongue depressors and it starts to glow as Marjorie Glick sits up. Yeah. Oh, God. And like that, it it happens so fast. She she comes at them and they they're holding her back with crosses and uh, and Jimmy lets his guard down for just a second. And she is on him and she like pushes him down in the corner and starts biting him. And then Ben runs up and burns her with the cross. It and she sinks like into her skin. Yeah. Any resistance. <laughs> and then she backs into the, he backs her into the corner and she just taunts him saying that their circle is, uh, their circle is getting smaller. And then she vaporizes into the stone. Basically <laughs> she just vanishes and like Jimmy's freaking out. They like pour like peroxide or whatever yeah. into his wound. <laughs> I actually get this. They, they Jimmy cures his vampirism with disinfectant and a tetanus shot. Yeah, uh, I know why. Why? Ooh. Because medicine, according to Jimmy earlier in the chapter, is just white magic. He describes that. Uh, he I think he takes to uh, ibuprofen or something. And he gives it to someone and says, you know what that is? It's it's a painkiller. You know how it works? Because doc- doctors don't. <laughs> doctors have, well, first of all, it's the 70s. So he's like, yeah, <laughs> medicine, who knows? We just we just know it works. Uh, so I, I believe that this is a, a thing of Jimmy falls back on what he knows, on what he believes Okay, in. so it's a faith thing, which I, faith I, thing. I agree with and I really like, but... Why then do they go to later all of the townspeople with stakes and not with peroxide and aspirin? Because <laughs> well, they've already been fully turned. Point. I, I don't know. It's it's a stretch. So this is where we jump back to this Mark is and when Susan. we jump back in time. Mark finding Susan in the woods. We know the circle grows smaller, but mm-hmm. we don't know who. Right. They, they uh, except we kind of do what? because in the prologue we know Ben is with a kid. Yeah. And not a girl. Although, so, uh, in defense of the prologue, I thought it was Father Callahan and Mark. Oh, that's what I thought originally, time. too. Ah, interesting. I, I thought yeah. the writing a book was a misdirect because later it talks about Callahan writing, writing a book. That is true. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was a misdirect. Oh, I, I guess I just remembered from uh, the first <laughs> time I read it. But yeah, Mark finds Susan. He's like, what are you doing, dummy? Uh, let's go. <laughs> let's go inside. And so they they see Straker drive out. And it's interesting because when I feel like when Susan and Mark are paired up, she becomes a child again. She seems like his peer. Yeah. yeah. Well, she they they also talk about it a couple of the times that when Mark takes command, he still like there are times where he takes command of all the adults in the room, mm-hmm. too. Like, he well, just, maybe he becomes her peer then yeah. more so than she becoming his. They see Straker drive away and they break in through the front window. They're going through the house. Fun fact, they find a book on uh, the table uh, that's written in Latin and has profane uh, writings in it. The short story that I mentioned last episode, uh, Jerusalem's Lot, there's a book written in Latin called De Vermis Mysteries, uh, the mystery of the worm. Ben, you're not supposed to speak Latin out loud. (laughs) Oh, shit. Now what's going to (laughs) happen? Ben just turned inside out for the the listening audience. Anyway, (laughs) uh, so it's heavily hinted at Mm -hmm. that it's this book from Jerusalem's life. Um, They go through the house. Uh, This is another another great king description of a book. They are uh, not a book, a (laughs) a king description of a door. They go to the cellar and Susan describes they open the door. The darkness as like a tongue licking out and hoping and that as the sun sets it will devour the room and they're so entranced by looking into the darkness of the cellar that they don't realize that Straker has come back and comes at them from behind and knocks mark out so then we jump to mark coming to and Straker is like throws him on the floor because he realizes that he's conscious and hog ties him and like he's gonna hang him from the ceiling and be like hey we're going to, uh, Barlow's going to eat Susan, and then uh, one of them's going to eat you. Uh, so you just hang out here. Uh, I have things to do. And then pieces out. But Mark, <laughs> while he's being tied up, has tensed all of his muscles. He Houdini's himself. Yeah. 
because this kid is a gunslinger. Yeah. yeah. He is thinking, he he thinks so fast, it's not even in images or th- words anymore. He just sees himself and knows what to do. And he escapes. He Houdinis himself out of these uh, ropes and pulls off a metal bed leg and waits as footsteps come up the stairs. And his relationship with the tall man at the pro in the prologue is reminiscent of Roland and Jake. Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. And then he bashes Straker's head in. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Jake. <laughs> Just like Jake would. <laughs> Just beats him over the head. And then uh, Straker grabs him by the ankle when he goes to investigate. And then he it's he doesn't say it. He alludes to the fact that he shatters all the bones in Straker's hand and then just <laughs> drops it and goes, makes it down to the cellar. And it is too late. He stands at the top and he hears Susan scream and then go quiet. And then he hears the voice of Barlow commanding him to come downstairs. And he everything in him is screaming, don't go. But his body starts going. And then. I'm, and I'm not sure why this worked, but he just Mark screams down the corridor that he knows his name is Barlow. And that seems to like break the temporary enchantment and he makes it out. And yeah. then that night, Susan appears at his window. There are lots more of us now. Ugh. We move on uh, to finally Callahan Yay! and Matt <laughs> get together and uh, ca- catch each other up. <laughs> That's uh, they, they have a uh, uh, discussion, and Callahan doesn't believe him. Essentially, uh, he agrees to go with them to to investigate, but he doesn't fully. He can't let himself fully believe and give the church involved. And it's everything he's begging for, everything he needs to restore his faith, and he can't see it. Which brings us to the final part of the book, part three, the deserted village, the final confrontation, the final day. Where they go through the town, injecting them with tetanus shots, (laughs) and giving them pills. (laughs) You read read the wrong version of that book, CM. It's October 5th. Uh, ben has been in the lot for one month. Oh, jeez. And Jesus. the next hundred or so pages takes place over one day. That's it's so nuts. Uh, and at this point now, uh, Mark has has joined the team because he goes to uh, to Ben's and fills him in about what happened to Susan. They even go and he proves it by being like, here's her car. Uh, they gives him all the pieces then they go back and now now our team is assembled minus Callahan um, in the hospital room and they lay out that the kill plan. And Matt has done all this research that they have to stake the heart, decapitate it, stuff the mouth with garlic, then turn it, turn the head face down and still maybe have to wait the coffin and throw it likely in a river. <laughs> and they also need to go see Callahan because uh, he's going to give them holy water. He's going to give them host. And Callahan has to hear their confession mm-hmm. so that they have clean blood going into this. But here's a point that I am so confused about. This is also the point where they say that if they come across Susan, Ben has to kill her. See, I think that's because Stephen King really likes Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's 100 yeah, uh, because that's what happens in Dracula, and in the forward of the edition that I have, he's sim- he straight up says like Bram Stoker's Dracula is like one of the first books uh, I read. It's one of his favorites, and a lot of this book is like just straight from Dracula. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, but the thing is, like they ask, "Did you guys sleep together?" Because if you did, you're gonna have to do this. <laughs> like I don't know, like why? Why is that the <laughs> Like, I don't, I don't get it. It bothered me. Um, but also, that Matt just gets to sleep through this? Fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that old man. He just had a heart bed. attack. He just, uh, like, days ago. Like, like <laughs> a day ago. One or two days ago. <laughs> uh, uh, meanwhile, the town's dead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It goes through a, uh, a rundown of 
just uh, just vampires. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's a laundry. It's basically another like another chunk of the entire town. Almost everybody we've met yeah. has now at this point been bitten or fully turned. And in the meantime, Ben is going to spend all day making like what fourteen wooden stakes. <laughs> uh, uh, so then we we have uh, the team goes to the church. They do their confession, which uh, Ben didn't know how to do, so they had to walk him through it <laughs> and like walk him through the penance. And then they all jump in Jimmy's car and they head out uh, and they get to the house and. Callahan straight up smotes a front door. And I thought that was so cool. And then Very Callahan cool. says, this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Because he just brought his cross down uh, on the, the metal lock and mm-hmm. it turned into a melted pile of metal. And this drives me insane because from this point forward, why is there any problem at all? They all just witnessed an act of God. Their faith should be rock solid. 100%. And like from that point on, why is there any issue? For Ben, there there really is. Like as far as faith goes. Very true. Everybody else's faith besides. And yeah. Yeah. I mean like their faith's pretty rock solid until it's called into question. True. We'll get to later. Yeah. So they're in the house and uh, they go upstairs. They find Straker uh, hung upside down and bled dry. And it's already getting dark. Then they hit down, they go down to the basement and they find a letter from Barlow that basically just taunts all of them. And it's a real like, snotty letter. Yeah, it's real <laughs> shitty. And uh, he taunts all of them, especially Callahan, and basically offhandedly just says, uh, you can't kill me, but but uh, Ben, your lady's here. And you might want to take care of that if you're here before sundown, which I assume you are. And you made me kill my like best friend, yeah. basically, because <laughs> he disappointed me. me. Yeah. I was hungry. <laughs> I didn't have a which little is, boy to eat. Which is why, Mark, I'm going to kill your family. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> chop your balls off. And chop your balls um, off. Can I just read off his his taunts against Callahan? Sure. Are so cool. So terrifying because he, he does make a point against Callahan. And I guess that makes that answers the question I yeah, just asked. That, that, that <laughs> plants a seed of doubt. Because he knows that Callahan is the most powerful against right. him. And he says, My rights were old when the rights of your church were unconceived. I will best you how you say, does not Caliban Callahan bear the symbol of white? Yes, but I am not the serpent. I am the father of serpents. In the end, you will undo yourself. Yeah, that was pretty Real boss. big foreshadow. <laughs> so they they find Susan and Ben uh, cries his way through staking and then decapitating his love, which, eh, I mean. Hey, uh, he killed his first wife, so. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> after all is said and done, they head back to the hospital because they then have to fill in Matt on being like, well, we did something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some shit went down. Uh, but it's not what we thought. Uh, but they again, they they make a classic Dungeons and Dragons mistake. They split the party, yeah. mm-hmm. and Cody and Ben went back to the hospital. Mark and Callahan went to Mark's parents. Matt, to his credit, manages to talk uh, Cody and Ben from just like running off into the night to go to Mark's because they call and the phone line's dead, mm-hmm. so they know something is coming. And he just he's like, he could do it without cutting the phone line he did it so you'll go so you need to stay here then we get back to marks smash cut the confrontation between callahan and barlow it is in in media res callahan is in the kitchen barlow has mark by the neck his parents are laying dead on the floor and the cross in callahan's hand is shining and he is holding him in at bay with the power of God. And he still manages to fuck it up. But it, he it fucks up in such the perfect way. Yeah, and this part's tragic because Callahan's having a crisis of faith. And he finally comes face to face with the thing that he needs. That he's been begging for that evil with a capital E. And it destroys him much quicker than the, you know, the mundane everyday evils that have slowly been eroding his faith. And what happens next is not what I expected. Barlow basically makes the deal. He's like, look, I'll let the boy go if you throw that cross aside. And then it's faith on faith. Let's do this. 
And he's like, and Callahan is obviously like, no, I'm not going to, you would, as soon as I throw this away, you would kill the boy. Let's Mark go. And then it's like, all right, your turn. Yeah. Cause if you, and, and then uh, Barlow's faith in his dark powers is stronger than Callahan's faith well, in God. Cal- Callahan, it, it's because he puts, Barlow puts Callahan in a position where Callahan makes the only logical assumption in his head because I think anybody would be like, no, this is just a trick for you to make me throw away mm-hmm. the cross, but is me not throwing the cross away showing that I don't have faith? And then the and glow he- just. Yeah, starts going down out. and it cre- Callahan starts panicking more, which is making him lose his faith more. Barlow Whoa. breaks that cross oh! into pieces, just plucks it right out of his hand. And then he makes Father Callahan drink his blood or as Barlow puts it, take my communion. And this part's cool. And of course, by cool, I mean totally gross and creepy and cool. Barlow tells him you would welcome the oblivion of my death now, I think. There is no memory for the undead, only the hunger and the need to serve the master. I could make use of you. I could send you among your friends. Yet, is there need of that? Without you to lead them, I think they are little. And he goes on to say, there is perhaps a more fitting punishment for you, false priest. Uh, He marks him. It's so disgusting. So fucking metal. (laughs) fuck that's metal and that's when we lose father callahan he removes himself from the situation because he is tainted and then so we've just got the rest of our our ever closing circle yeah he uh we might as well finish out his story arc in the book because he only shows up twice more he goes to the church and when he touches the doorknob it blasts him back and burns his hand because god has rejected him and he takes a bus out of town Just and uh gotta read the dark tower series if leaves. you want to know more about father but Conley. he leaves town uh wearing a blue chambray shirt <laughs> and as stephen king's second book this is not only a blue chambray shirt but the, the first blue chambray it is shirt the first <laughs> <laughs> all right so we go back Mark has rejoined the group. Now, they're back in the hospital, and there's a point that I need to bring up that maybe you guys can help me understand. They they come up with their next plan. Tomorrow, they're going to make a bunch of stakes. They're going to find out where Barlow's hiding, and they're going to put an end to this. But Ben says the line that Matt is the most important of all of them. Yeah. Why? Why? No, oh, I agree. Because he's doing all... They think that because he's doing all the research. Like, he's this but hub his, of knowledge. His research is over. Like, yeah. like what, I, what more can he contribute to this group? No, 100% Mark. Well, he brought the group together, though. I guess. And they see him as their Van Helsing. Yeah. Uh, I guess. But, like, I mean, Barlow, after seeing Barlow release Matt and tell Callahan, the boy makes ten of you false priest. Like, yeah. you can't help but cheer for fucking Mark. Yeah, <laughs> Mark is the real MVP yeah. of this entire party. So, oh, also, uh, Barlow sends a thrall to try and murder them. Uh, yeah. Ann Norton comes with a gun and then just gets taken out by some rando. You know, yeah. I feel like she would have done that without his influence. <laughs> without <coaxing laughs> but it's also Mark who points it out to someone that she has a gun, even though like they don't say it's Mark. We know it's Mark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we get some more random around the town stuff of other people dying. And the important thing is that it's their time to start searching. They they found that they had Mark try to remember any clues he could find, and he remembers there being blue chalk. And so they're like, they, they run down some options. So their best bet is he's at the closed school because there's a third and fourth story that are closed off. So blue chalk, maybe in an art class, whatever. That's mm. that's where we're going. They start searching. They go to the, the furniture store first, find the the box that was Barlow's original mm-hmm. coffin with Mark Petrie with, in it. or no, not Mark, Mark Ryerson. Petrie. <laughs> Mike Ryerson. Mike Ryerson. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and they just leave him. They're like, uh, we'll come back for this. And they put the top back on and go <laughs> like, all right, you, you got a, you got a, a lucky buy there, Mike. And they, so they get back to Mark's cause they're going to make all of these stakes and Mark just can't go in. So Cody and Ben go in there and they, they have their own kind of little breakdown of how insanely taxing this is. Like Jimmy's mm-hmm. like 
can you can do this today, but can you do this for the next month? Like, yeah. how long can we do this before we go insane? Which I thought was an incredibly valid point. Valid yeah. point. Like, I mean, how long do you think you could be? A couple, couple hours, maybe <laughs> hour tops. Which is why you're both vampires. Oh, I am the only the one standing against strong. us. <laughs> against all of us falling to the thrall of darkness. So they split the party again. Ben stays to make stakes. Sorry, I've, uh, I've this is my... <laughs> In my notes. So they're talking about the process. They have to do all of this stuff. And uh, Jimmy and Mark are searching the houses. And I wrote in my notes, why do they need to stake all of them? Why can't they just like drag them up, drag them all into the sunlight and move on? The very next page, they, they pull that. the McDougal family out into the light. They pull... Uh, Randy. Yeah, Randy Bye. McDougal, the, the dad, out. Because uh, like, who should we pull out? And Mark's like, not the baby. <laughs> Uh, I disagree. Yeah, that's you can just grab that baby by the leg and just flail it (laughs) into the day. Well, and it's so in hopes it would just explode. I think (laughs) because a traditional vampire in the sunlight, it should just like just burst into flames. (laughs) So that's what I I would have gone baby first. That's just (laughs) that's just me. But I'm a gentleman. So they they pull they pull uh, uh, Randy McDougal out. And he just starts flailing all over. But not like he's not like awake or conscious no. or aware of them. It's like an instinct. Yeah. He's yeah. like crawling back into the, the yeah. It's crawl just space. so terrible to look at that they're like, we're not doing that. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're that's out of the question. I was like, nope. Pull uh, them all out. Close that door. <laughs> that's fine. Move on. So the answer is we can handle this for like five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the point is, I'm a vampire killing machine. <laughs> while they're while they're checking. Jimmy has uh, uh, a memory and knows where Barlow is. I thought that connection was so cool. Yes, because earlier in the book, I believe some character had uh, uh, mentioned that Eva has a pool table in Mm -hmm. her basement. And also uh, there was an earlier point where Ava went into her basement and there was this horrible smell. And you assume it's Weasel. Right. But... But it's not. It's much worse. Uh, Jimmy realizes that it's Barlow in the basement. And this drove me insane. They go, well, yeah. let's go check it out. See? Yeah, they make <laughs> all go. these stupid decisions. This is the dumbest idea. They're like, yeah, we'll go check and it out. If he's there, then we'll go get Ben and the stakes that we need. And what happens? Jimmy gets home alone. <laughs> he does. He sure does. <laughs> Barlow, the original wet bandit. Uh, wait, no. That the original Kevin, Kevin McAllister. McAllister. <laughs> um, yeah, they go and Barlow. the vampires have cut off the stairs to the, to the cellar. And he falls onto a bunch of knives and dies just horribly. And Mark out. has to drive his car back to his house. Yeah, my, <laughs> he does a pretty good job. <laughs> uh, yeah, Mark goes, finds Ben. They're in a hurry. They're rushing now because fucking uh, sundown is coming. And what do they do? He's like, Ben, what do we do now? And Ben's reaction is, well, we should go find uh, Park Perkins. Go find the fucking sheriff yeah, who's we'll, done nothing. We'll go talk to Perkins. Who doesn't give a crap? No, he he's doesn't like, give yeah, a shit. I, I got he it. Sucks. I'm not doing anything about this. You guys yeah. are on your own. Yeah, he was like, oh, the vampires. Yeah, the vampires. <laughs> Peace out. But, and then they go to the church because they got to keep making stops yeah. before they go. And which, they get, well, to, to be fair, that comes in handy. Yeah, it does. They, they wash their hands in the holy water and they put it on their face and they fill some more vials and then they head back. They make their way down and uh, they, they don't see anything, but they see this giant wardrobe and they pull it down. And the door that they know behind that door is Barlow. And <laughs> Ben tries to break the lock down and he can't do it. And he's like, we're all going to die. Cause I can't break a fucking lock. <laughs> then he sees an ax <laughs> and he pours holy water on the ax. And this is where I was like, shit is going yeah. nuts. Because the axe starts to glow. And then I think it describes him as he is a moving column of blue fire. Because oh, once they enter the darkness, their hands start to glow mm-hmm. and their faces start to glow. So like they, you can tell it's all, it's all working. And he axes down the door, pushes through, and there's Barlow's crypt. But in between 
uh, in between them is every member of the people who've been staying in Eva's house, all lying dead. Mm-hmm. And they they go over to grab the casket, and it looks massive, and it looks like indestructible, basically, the, the impression they get from it. And they can lift it with just ease, like the, the power mm-hmm. of good that is flowing through them. Yeah. Mark even says, I could move it with one hand. Uh, and they bring it out into the other room. I wrote Ben Hulk's out of his shirt. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it does. But he's a man possessed, and they describe this possession as not in the least Christian. It's more elemental, less refined. It is pure good. Yeah. Of uh, filling them. So they use this goodness to drag Barlow out into the cellar, and they open it up. They don't even open the lids. It just breaks open at their touch. And Barlow sits up. Yeah, so they open it up and Mark makes eye contact with Barlow and he makes him leap at Ben to try to take the gun. And Ben has to punch this child in the face. Just knock him unconscious. Yeah, which uh, makes him lose the power of God. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Punch the kid in the face twice. Yeah. God's like, whoa, hey now. Josh, if you had thrown that baby out. Oh, yeah, but they oh, washed up afterward. Yeah, no, they washed up afterwards. I'd still be fine. <laughs> uh, and yeah, there's this there's this fight. He loses the power of you know, the, the glow recedes and you think he's in real trouble. And it's this fight and you see uh, Barlow sitting up and, and then he, he just stakes him. Yeah, he stakes him and he disintegrates. Basically, like he decays and falls apart. Uh, and then that is that is when sunsets uh, that the sunset has, has now happened. They've they've staked him. He's disintegrated. Uh, Mark has come to and then all of the residents start pouring out. And there's basically like, a, hey, we'll be back for you fuckers. <laughs> And they like, but they can't touch them because they, they still have that divine protection. So they they get out and then they just leave. Mm-hmm. They just leave Salem's lot. And Mark or Ben comes back the next day to bury Mark's parents and Jimmy, which and was great. And then they leave. And now we are back at the beginning of the book at the prologue. And this is why I like I, the, the the epilogue is my favorite part of the like like that. That makes that beginning part so worth it because that part of me that was like, why did they leave? Like they had a plan. Like what were they waiting for? Then we find out really what they were waiting for, like the conditions they were waiting for to undo all of this. And they start referencing the great fire that happened and those conditions that it hadn't rained in so long. There was high winds. There were all these things. And they burn the town to the ground. And they say, you know, to it'll burn and they'll run. But tomorrow, me and you. And that's the end of the book. Uh, so let's get to our final ratings. I I did not like this book. Really? Uh, at, not at the, all? At, no, uh, uh, at the beginning. Okay. Like, as it, it started going on, like I said, it's, uh, to me, it, ha- Needful Things being my favorite book, mm. um, this felt very much like uh, Needful Things wouldn't be the great book it is if this book didn't exist because this feels like the prototype for that book in my head. And so as I'm comparing those two, uh, I had I had that standard that it didn't quite hit for me. Uh, But as the as the end of that book goes, uh, the action is so awesome. And we've actually talked so much more about the things in this book than I ever thought we would have to talk about because I just I didn't. I wasn't didn't feel connected to it, mm. but it, it's it's a really good story. Like it, it's it's a great vampire story. Uh, there's lots of things to to talk about and love about it, and uh, we get Father Callahan, uh, which is great in itself. But I don't think I would ever reread this book for any other reason than what we're doing now. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and just give it a, a three out of five blue chambray shirts. Fair. I I feel a lot of the of the same ways. It's it kind of a, a drag through the first part, but once it picks up, it is you, you can't put it down for what it is. Kind of an early King book. Uh, it really does feel like he's finding his feet. There are a lot of really amazing um, set pieces and uh, and some really excellent writing in the book. 
but I, I'm going to have to give it a, a probably three and a half uh, blue chambray shirts because uh, not quite there. You guys probably don't know this about me, but I love anything <laughs> vampire related. <laughs> I would watch any vampire crap even. <laughs> I do not care. So to bring together vampires and Stephen King is amazing. I did. It's not one of my favorites, like the way Misery hit me or even the dark half or some others that we're going to get to. But especially after having had a conversation this in depth that we've just had about it, it did elevate it more for me than I was initially going to rate it. So I'm going to give it five blue chambray shirts. Fantastic. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode where we will be watching the entire three-hour Salem's Lot miniseries. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn reminding you that if a fear cannot be articulated, it can't be conquered. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thanks for listening to Salem's Lot Part 2. In a 1980s interview, Stephen King said that this book, of all his books, was his favorite. In his defense, Salem's Lot came out in 1975. We forgot to mention one very important part of this book. Early in the book, when Straker first walks into Larry Crockett's office, the book Crockett has been reading is called Satan's Sex Slaves. That's it. Nothing else is said about that book. I googled it and I can't find a book with that title. So I guess that's what I get from making that joke about this being King's favorite book. Touche, Mr. King. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public. You can also send questions to our email, dairypublicradio at gmail.com. And you can listen to us everywhere you listen to podcasts, including, for some reason, YouTube. And if you'd be so kind as to give us a five-star review on iTunes, I'll stop making these terrible jokes at the end of the episodes. That's all for now. Goodbye, listeners.